0: Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan and welcome to the Caring CEO podcast brought to you by WeCare365. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and we hope there will be lots of insights for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. Welcome to our first episode for 2023, and I really hope you've had a great break. And boy, do we have a great first guest for you. Kirsten Ferguson has just been nominated as one of the world's top 30 thinkers to watch by the UK-based Thinkers 50. She's had a remarkable and varied career, including stints as the Deputy Chair of the ABC and a number of non-executive director roles over the last 10 years. Before this, she was the CEO of a safety consulting firm and Director of Corporate Affairs for a large law firm. She started her career in the Royal Australian Air Force and in the 10 years she was there rose to the rank of Officer. As I said, a wonderful and varied career. She taps into this background of practice and theory for her just released book, Head and Heart, The Art of Modern Leadership. She truly believes that we are all leaders, whether we lead our families, our business, or our country. She hopes this book will start a conversation about modern leadership, and I think it will. I've uh, just bought my copy. As you'll hear in our interview, Kirsten is a very warm, articulate, and engaging speaker, and there are many gems to take action on from this discussion. We had a wide-ranging chat about why it is essential for today's leaders to combine IQ, aka the head, and EQ, the heart. Just a reminder, you can now buy her new book, Head & Heart, at any bookstore. Pip Marlowe, the CEO of Salesforce Asia Pacific, said this, Head & Heart will be joining my favourite leadership books on my bedside table, so you can find the new book in every bookstore. I know you'll enjoy our wide-ranging discussion. Enjoy. It's a real pleasure to welcome Dr. Kirsten Ferguson to The Caring CEO. Welcome, Kirsten.
1: Hello, Graham. It's great to be here.
0: Kirsten, what does care in the workplace mean to you?
1: Do you know, it's pretty simple. It really means, and following through, on putting people at the centre. You know, it's really genuinely having every decision you make, thinking about the impact it's going to have on, on people. And that's all we are, it's people. And so I don't even want to think of it as stakeholders. This is just putting people at the centre.
0: But is that too slow and cumbersome to involve everyone in decision making?
1: Well, I don't think it means you need to consult with every single person you're going to put at the centre, but it does mean if you're a leader, you're really thinking about, well, what is the impact of the decision I'm about to make? Who is it most going to impact? And have I thought about what that will mean to them? And if you care, that's something that you'll spend time on. And I don't think it needs to slow down decisions. And in fact, during the pandemic, we saw leaders needing to put care at the forefront with very little information. And they certainly couldn't consult with everyone they were going to impact. But by caring about the outcomes and about the people they were going to impact and affect, uh, they were showing how you could care in action.
0: Yeah. And you've had a a very broad and varied career. And I say that in a really positive way. You've, You've experienced lots of different circumstances, environment. And earlier on, you were for 10 years an officer in the Royal Australian Air Force, What did you learn about leadership in that environment?
1: Oh, it was like a petri dish (laughs) for learning about (laughs) leadership. I um, went to the Australian Defence Force Academy when I was only 17, straight out of a private girls' school in Sydney into an environment where it was certainly male-dominated, and I had no uh, preparation for what that was going to be like. And I was at ADFA all through the early 1990s, which has now you know, been fairly widely condemned by the military themselves as well for their treatment of cadets. And it was a period where it was very hierarchical and it was a bit like the movie Platoon, lots of yelling and screaming. And, uh, you know, and I certainly became a third year and became one of those people yelling and screaming. And so what I remember learning about that is that it's totally ineffective and it's completely (laughs) exhausting Uh, besides being at times, I'm sure from some of the, you know, incidents there, you know, it was an unsafe place for many. Mm-hmm. And this culture of silence and not speaking up and, and being quite misguided in what you thought leading was about. Um, once I came out to serve in the Air Force, it was quite different. But I was young and 21 as a young officer posted to RAF Base Ambly, and I was leading sergeants and flight sergeants who had been in the Air Force longer than I'd been alive. Wow. So, you know, that's a very humbling experience. And you might an officer, but really it's their experience and worldliness um, that you need to rely on. And so, you know, being a humble leader and understanding you're there to serve others, including those you lead, was really ingrained in me from that early time. So, I think the military is often misunderstood for their uh, approach to leadership. ADFA was a, a strange example, but For the rest of the military, and certainly the modern military, it's very much an idea of serving others. And, you know, uh, eating last, there's a book by Simon Sinek called Leaders Eat Last, which comes out of the US military. That kind of idea is very much uh, ingrained in you when you come through the military. So I've got a huge amount of respect for the leadership approach that we learned uh, as officers.
0: In your latest book, Head and Heart, The Art of Modern Leadership. You have a, you start with a story about a US Army captain, Will Swenson. Why was that so important to you and why did you lead your whole book with that that, um, background?
1: Yeah, and for anyone listening, they may or may not have heard this story, but um, there's, the only reason anyone knows about this story is because there happened to be a a head cam on a helicopter crew in Afghanistan. And this is during the Afghanistan War and Captain Will Swenson was a US Army Marine captain. And there was a the Battle of Ganjal, which is a very significant battle, and there's headcam footage of him and how he conducts himself. Now, normally we don't get a bird's eye view into that kind of thing, but there's a particular scene and he wouldn't have known any of this was going on. I'm sure he had far more things he was dealing with. And you can Google on YouTube and see Captain Swenson's video. But there's a moment in it where he puts his sergeant onto a helicopter. The sergeant later goes on to tragically pass away. But you see Captain Swenson lean in and give him a kiss, just a really tender kiss on the cheek, and it is a split second. But that humanity in the middle of war is striking. It's not what you expect to see. But then, of course, you think, oh, well, you know, maybe I would do the same, but I don't think we necessarily would. And what it really got me thinking about is this idea of how every moment is a leadership moment. Every single moment all of us have is a chance to leave a positive legacy in our wake or, you know, to cause a mess. And that moment really started me thinking about this need to have head and heart in every one of those moments. And so, it sort of started me on a big, long journey and I read everything I could about Swenson who you know, has a remarkable story in and of himself. But it's led me to write a book and do research with QUT and really understand, well, what are those attributes of leading with the head and the heart? And how do we measure those? And then what's that look like for a modern leader?
0: Yeah. And before that, you've been a very strong advocate for women advancing into leadership and women playing a role in society. And you started a movement, and it was called hashtag celebrating women and and what was behind that and how did it how did it grow? How did it evolve? Did it surprise you how much it took off?
1: All of the above. <laughs> so um I, ho- I know this is a, a, a podcast, but I'm just going to do a mild swear word, but at the start <laughs> of 2017, I was really pissed off. Um, <laughs> Donald Trump had just been elected president. Women were taking to the streets around the world and in their pink uh, pussy hats, if you remember the the knitted ones. Mm. And, you know, there was just this sense of outrage among many women that it was not okay. We needed to do things differently. Me Too hadn't even come about yet. And I remember I'm online, I do a lot on social media, and there was just a particular thread of tweets aimed at an Australian journalist, Patricia Carvelis. and I was just, I was- pissed off. I remember thinking if I'd been standing next to someone and they said these things to another woman, I would have said something. And in some cases, you'd call the police. But online, it's very hard. You're a bystander almost. You know, you can't really do anything. So I I live on the beach, took myself off for a walk all annoyed. And uh, okay, I never do things by halves, Graham. I came up with this idea. That I would see if I could make my news feed a little bit more positive, rang my mum, asked her four random questions that I made up then and there and posted her story online. I didn't tell anyone she was my mum. She's no one in particular, a retired nurse and things. But, you know, everyone was interested in this story. So then and there, I made a commitment I was going to celebrate two women from all walks of life anywhere in the world every day for a year. I've got to tell you, had I thought through how big it would get, I might not have done it or I would have probably overthought it. Um, You know, there's something to be said for just leaping in. So, I didn't strategize. I didn't have any resources. It was just me and my laptop. But it took off and it became viral. And by the end of the year, I celebrated 757 women from 37 countries around the world. And it sparked and still sparks uh, spin-off campaigns. You'll you'll see lots of celebrations. women in different industries, different organisations. There's a Celebrating Veterans that's just uh, come out. And so, it was the most enormously rewarding year of my life. But the women I celebrated were not the normal women we hear about. And that's why it was so exciting. It was. Um, There was no barriers to entry. All you had to do was identify as a woman. I certainly celebrated trans women as well. And it was anyone. And so I ended up celebrating women who all got in touch. I didn't seek anyone out. They they sort of heard about the campaign, but there were cleaners, grandmothers, pet whisperers from California, not surprising, uh, <laughs> ice, big ice rig truckers from uh, the Arctic. There was a teacher from Kabul, a lady who runs a flat Bottom, uh, you know, those uh, glass bottom boats in Vanuatu, lots of mums and grandmothers and teachers. And there were big names as well, um, but they were celebrated equally alongside women, you know, we would never otherwise have heard of. And the whole idea was every woman is a role model. Mm. And the campaign showed that day after day.
0: And that's uh, gone on to be a real belief of you that everyone is a leader as well. And um, How can everyone lead on a day-to-day basis? What can they do to make a positive difference?
1: Well, I think, you know, I'm obviously a big believer that, you know, you can lead with your head and your heart everywhere. And the best, most effective leaders integrate the kind of person they are at home with how they are at work. Because, you know, I often do a lot of work as an executive coach with um particularly men, but not always, that are technically brilliant. Um, mm-hmm. They've reached the top of their industry. They're incredibly skilled, but at work, they have a persona. It's, you know, success is about being very professional, um, not showing heart, not showing too much empathy, just let's, you know, hit the KPIs and, and move on. And that has seen them succeed. Mm-hmm. But they realise you do get to certain point where you need a lot more than that to be obviously a successful leader. And when I talk to them In their home life, they might have a horde of kids, they might be active in their church or their local community, and they're a completely different person when they're talking about that. So, I think for anyone, it's integrating all those best parts of yourselves and realising you don't need to be one person at home and one person at work. But in fact, the more you can bring those together, they make you the modern leader we really need around us in the world today.
0: It was a real privilege. Uh, My first interview for the Caring CEO was with Mike Schneider, the CEO of Bunnings, and he leads his life by the four H's. And so the four H's are honest, humble, helpful, and happy. And Mm -hmm. that's how he measures his life. And there's no differentiation between, you know, home life or work life. And I really love that approach. Have you heard of others that use something that's you know, really important to them in terms of the way they lead.
1: Yeah, I think yeah. in this book that uh, I've just got coming out now, I interview 25 different Australian leaders and they're as diverse as Mike Henry, that's CEO of BHP, and Sally McManus, the ACTU secretary, but through to teachers, activists, um, a playwright, and all of them have, you know, I think the unique characteristic they all bring is humility, because they're willing to talk about you know, what doesn't work so well and think again, you know, think that perhaps they don't have all the answers. Um, But in terms of the four H's, what I love about that is that it's seamless and, you know, some of the qualities that I see of modern leaders. So, I think, for example, curiosity is a fabulous quality for leaders and it's one of the eight that, uh, you know, my research identified as being so critical. And it's something that you can demonstrate in every aspect of your life. I mean, just doing a Google search when you're watching a TV show about who is that person and what movie do I remember seeing them in? You're curious, mm-hmm. but it's also emotional curiosity and that you can demonstrate at work. You know, if someone's obviously not themselves or there's something going on without peppering questions, clearly, because you have going to have that self-awareness to know how to deal with it, um, going and finding out, you know, how are they traveling? It's curiosity for me is an essential part of leadership.
0: Yeah, and when I looked at, uh, you know, your new book, which is coming out, um, Head and Heart, you talk about leading with the head, and that involved curiosity, wisdom, perspective, and capability. How do you engender that each day? Should you just concentrate on one each week, or how do you think <laughs> you should approach it?
1: Not at all. In fact, the art of modern leadership is knowing what is needed when. And so, in any given conversation or crisis or project you have to do, you're going to need elements of all eight attributes. And, you know, there's some conversations we go into where, let's use, for example, it might be just setting Budgets for the year, and you think, well, I've just got to use all my capability and and have a growth mindset. You know, you obviously want to continue to do well, but in fact, you also need a huge amount of humility. Have I got it right? What have I forgotten? Um, a bit of self awareness, if you're the CFO, about you know, have I got everyone else's view? How do they feel about this? And you know, maybe some courage to stand up to people. So. I just think, in every single moment, you're going to need different elements of each attribute of being a modern leader, but the art is really knowing what's needed when.
0: Yeah, and then it's combined with uh, leading with the heart, which is humility, mm. awareness, courage, and empathy, all um you know fantastic qualities for anyone to want to nurture.
1: yeah, well, and. It- You need both, though. So, think about the people you know that are really good on those. They're not very capable. Uh, They don't make decisions very quickly. And while they've got all the good intent in the world, everything collapses. And I think that's one of the challenges and why I wrote this book to have head and heart equally balanced, because there's a lot of books where you might go and read about vulnerability, for example, fabulous quality again, but you can't be a leader that's just permanently vulnerable and (laughs) not also really capable um, and wise and able to read the room and do all of that. And I think that for leaders is something I think, We must never forget. We can't throw out the baby for the bathwater. And so, yes, you must be self-aware and humble, but you also need to really be able to do your job (laughs) to be able to succeed.
0: Which is very congruent with, you know, the approach of the caring CEO. We talk about leaders having leading with a culture of uh, high performance and a culture of care. So if you think about it, that is very much hidden heart.
1: Very well. much. <laughs> I mean, you can't, yes, you absolutely be have to be... Um, focused on performance, not just your own either, obviously that of the whole organisation and the people within it. And I do feel in other books I've read, sometimes that gets forgotten. And particularly those kinds of leaders I was talking to about before, highly technical, they've really succeeded in their industry through their ability to perform. It's not immediately obvious to them how they are vulnerable in that situation. You know, what does that look like every day? And so I'm trying to make that a bit more accessible for people.
0: You uh, expressed earlier about your disappointment, significantly disappointed in the election of Donald Trump as (laughs) as president. How do you explain that 46% of the country voted for him and including that was a huge number of women and and this was just after the story came out about, you know, grabbing the pussy and this sort of stuff. How do you, how is that possible?
1: <laughs> yeah, you tell me. <laughs> I mean, I think it's hard. I'm never one to make a joke. I mean, we're not American. You and I are not American. I think um, trying to make observations or reflections on a country and a culture that's not our own, and I think their history is. Very long and different to ours. And I I feel for the state of where things are at at the moment. And it looks like he may run again. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, interestingly, though, closer to home, we look at our own government. And, you know, the former government, there were a lot of issues they faced around their treatment of women. Mm -hmm. And, you know, voters in Australia made their choice loud and clear. And I think it shows the kinds of modern leaders that people want to see. And, you know, whether in the US they find one that fits for them, Um, I hope they do. I certainly hope they do. But, yeah, it's hard to explain that phenomenon. I think you and I would be here for days (laughs) trying to explain that.
0: (laughs) And you highlight another thing which was very significant in the last election, and that was the, the surge of these teals, these women who were... Passionate about doing something about climate change and progressing women. What was the momentum behind that, do you think? Like it was a significant result, never happened anything like this before. Is it just just frustration and people wanting to do something? What are your thoughts about that? I think
1: so. I mean, there's always been incredibly talented women that Mm -hmm. other incredibly talented women want to elect, but Mm -hmm. rarely do they get a spot in a safe seat or in a seat even um, Mm -hmm. by the major parties. And so I think what we saw with the Teals is incredibly talented, capable women who other women were finally able to elect and, you know, all power to them. Uh, I think we'll probably see more of that unless the major parties actually start to rethink the kinds of candidates that they're pre-selecting. And um, if they don't sort of modernise and find mm. these modern leaders that we need, then I, can, I suspect independence will continue to, to surge forward.
0: And it was also significant, wasn't it, that Simon Holmes of court, you know, was behind the scenes and helped helped to support a lot of these um, initiatives and gave them momentum and funding that they may not have had if, uh, you know, if he hadn't been there.
1: Yes, I mean, I don't know much about Simon um, Holmes' of Courts uh, background and things, but I think for anyone who wants to run for any office and, you know, good for them because so many of us don't don't see what happens and don't want to be involved, Mm -hmm. I think having um, any kind of support you can to help fund those uh, campaigns is important and, you know, it makes it much more possible to compete against the major parties.
0: Thanks for being part of the Care First movement. You may be interested in some free resources that we've prepared at wecare365.com.au. The first resource is a Building a Mentally Healthy Culture Checklist, which contains all the elements that you'll need to prepare and launch a mentally healthy workplace program and how to build momentum for up to a year after that launch. The second resource is how to support a teammate, or a loved one in distress poster. This provides guidance about how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the Are you okay conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help they need. These resources can be found at wecare365.com.au. You've been a lifelong learner <laughs> after your military career, or um, well, you did a, a law degree. Uh, why did you choose to do that and then also then to go into law?
1: Yeah, well, I have been a lot. I've done three completely different degrees. My first degree was in history and um, that's still my first love, if I'm really honest, and did an honours degree looking at uh, wartime leadership. Then uh, I did a law degree and thought I'd practice law, was working in a large corporate firm, but uh, in a leadership role and really stayed there, loved Loved leading others, so never practiced. Uh, and then I've done a PhD in leadership, and I am a believer in lifelong learning. I'm not sure that I'll go back into another formal degree, <laughs> I think I've done my fair share. But I'm certainly um, every day, my habits involve a huge amount of reading. I subscribe to pretty much everything around the world, all sorts of things. And, um, you know, I'll spend an hour laying in bed reading all the headlines and reading the new articles and new thinking. And I really encourage anyone listening to just go really broad. You know, I subscribe to science magazines. I am not a scientist by <laughs> any stretch. Um, but you end up reading about studies and things that are all really applicable actually to people uh, okay. and and just to learn about what's going on in the world. But there's some Uh, incredible ways you can learn without needing to do formal education. And I I think that's um, really important for all of us.
0: Yeah, very much so. What was the things you learned about leadership and culture through doing a PhD, which you didn't know before you started?
1: Well, I must admit, doing a PhD, for anyone who's probably done one or they're doing one, there's a lot of jumping through hoops, and <laughs> writing <laughs> academic language, using academic language to uh, come to findings. I, I went into it naively thinking it was all about, you know, solving a new issue. But really, it's about building on an existing leadership theory just a smidge <laughs> and going very deep. So, my uh, research or my thesis was all around safety governance and the role of uh, leadership in the boardroom around health and safety and, um, you know, that kind of space. So, I did uh, case studies and interviews and then I reviewed, can you just feel for me this, Graham, uh, 10 years of uh, annual reports of ASX 200 companies. So There were hundreds of them and did a thematic analysis. So, it, doing a PhD is very different to real-world practice. It's very much in a theoretical um, framework. But what it really showed me is, firstly, I think we need to do better at bridging the gap between academia and practice. And I never wanted to be an academic, but mm-hmm. I am very grateful I have the research skills and mm-hmm. that's what I've sort of brought to um head in my next book because it's you can't just make stuff up <laughs> so I'm not a believer that I can just go and make up eight attributes of leadership I tested it, validated it we had sample groups did the literature reviews you know this is real research but it's written in a way that's designed to be entertaining and layman's terms and you know really easy to read. and I think that's what i I learned a lot about doing deep academic research is how you can make it something that everyone can learn from.
0: And you've also had a very successful career as a non-executive director, and um, probably notably you know with the ABC and not where you then progressed to deputy chairman and then you were acting chairman of the ABC. What was it like um, being on a board which is so high profile, has so many stakeholders, often with very different opinions. How do you keep the, I guess, perspective uh, on what's significant and what isn't significant when there is so much noise?
1: Yeah, and I was acting chair during a very tumultuous time at the ABC. It um, it's amazing how much I think my military background came into the fore in staying calm under pressure. And, Mm. you know, you never, it's one of those things you never really know until you're in the moment. Mm. And, uh, I think being self-aware enough to know how you're reacting to pressure is really important. So you actually, if you're not, calm, you know it, and you can find a way to sort of manage that or get people around you that can help manage it. But I also found in that situation where there's so many people wanting to give you advice, (laughs) I mean, it was just endless that that is the noise. Mm. Um, Just having a small group of trusted advisors and being conscious of that was really um, critically important. As was, you know, firefighting, for want of a better word, there was sort of, you know, issues that just come up and they're big issues. They're mm. issues that in normal sense would be, you know, an emergency meeting, mm. whereas it was happening on a half-daily basis. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, you really have to get good at um, compartmentalising and going, okay, uh, what is critical right now in the next hour for me to deal with is X. Mm. I realise why <laughs> is it mm. totally also really critical, but it's not going to, you know, Blow up in the next hour, so let's come back to that in three hours. And just having that sort of sense of being able to prioritize without uh, losing focus of what was really important. And you know, I I think it was a time where you learn a lot about yourself. You learn what kind of pressure you can and can't deal with, and and how you express that. And you know, I was fortunate that publicly, I'm very good at you know just being able to, stay calm and focused and very much on wanting to, you know, manage things really effectively. Privately, you're like anyone else where, you're, you know, it's it takes its toll and um, you have to have a safe place at home with family and friends that, you know, love you, that you can just be yourself and relax.
0: How do you practice self-care?
1: Yeah, it's um, a really good question because I've had times in my life I haven't particularly well and then I'm probably in a good place now in terms of being aware of what I need and when I need it. Um, I live at the beach so like as I speak to you now I'm looking at the sand and it's it's very easy to go and find a quiet moment and just stare at the waves and realise we're pretty small in the world. I also volunteer so I do a shift each week on the phones at Lifeline and as strange it is is, that is self-care for me, because it's a few hours where you are caring for someone else, obviously, and leading through empathy as listening and, and providing support, but by giving to others. It actually, you know, it's a way of me getting out of my own head. Um, Those, you know, few hours that I do, you don't think about anything else other than the person on the end of the phone. And it's remarkable, even though the stories are often terribly um, difficult for the, the person who's experiencing crisis, it still is a way you can make a difference. And for me, that feels really good and very far removed from my normal day-to-day life. Mm. Uh, And it really reminds you of the privilege anyone like us has to have a safe environment to live in, um, you know, food on the table, a job, uh, all of those kinds of things when you talk to others where that is not something they can take for granted.
0: And a friend of mine, um, Brendan Ma, used to work with Lifeline Australia, and he said there was a large percentage of people who called in who were lonely. That was really one of the really prim- primary motivations. Did you experience that as well?
1: Absolutely. Um, I did. There's certain time shifts if you get them and you get a lot of <laughs> elderly ladies who are lonely and men. Mm. And, you know, it's always made me think, Imagine. I, I wonder what their family would think if they knew that these people were having a call lifeline to just have a conversation and company. Um, for many of them, there is family, but they don't hear from them or they don't see them very often. And it's so humbling to be able to talk to some of these people whose life experiences are incredible and, you know, they're obviously just wanting someone to talk to. And that's lifeline... Is a really wonderful service, and you can get all extremes of calls. Um, but for that person, that's the crisis they're experiencing. And I think loneliness is a crisis for so many.
0: You have uh, two daughters, 19 and 21. What's your hope for them? What's your message or how they live their lives?
1: Oh, you know, obviously, like every parent, you just want them to be happy. Um, and I know that they are happy. So beyond that, I want them to feel safe and secure in who they are and to forge their own paths they're both very different they're doing very different things to their father and i um And, you know, they've got their own opinions on the world. And I think as um, a parent, you know, you can't ask for much more than that. And Mm -hmm. I think what we've been able to develop now is this beautiful adult relationship, which is very different to obviously when you're parenting them as at home and as children. And um, for me, it's, uh, you know, it's as big a joy now as, you know, when they're newborns and, That was the most exciting time. So I'm just incredibly proud of my daughters and, you know, can't wait to see what they do next.
0: It's interesting, isn't it, the young people, because um, there is a huge variety of careers or options they can pursue. In fact, it's changing every day. New positions are being created every day. How does a young person stay relevant?
1: Yeah, I think it's tough for young people now because there's this, I mean, I don't remember ever being asked that. Do you? When you were young, you know, how are you going to stay relevant? Um, I I would have had no idea how to answer that. So, you know, I think each of them are following what they want to do, but it's going to look very different to how we might have done it. Um, I only worked for sort of, I think, three major employers really in my career, whereas younger people we know from the stats have a lot of different employers or they'll do this uh, portfolio type gig um, career. And all of that's totally okay. You know, I'm very much of the view that uh, this old outdated notion of uh, living to work is well and truly gone. And so, good for them. I have no idea how they'll stay relevant. But what I can guarantee, Graham, is they're going to be relevant a lot longer than you and I.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But it is, uh, you know, I think it was Barry Schwartz who talked about the paradox of choice. You know, the more options there are, the harder it is to choose. And it was really brought home to me when I took my son, Adam, along to an open day for science at the University of New South Wales. And at that point, there were 40, it was along to a science open day, but there were 44 subspecialties of science. Yeah. Before I went to that, I could probably name about four.
1: <laughs> and then um. is- Yeah, I mean, it's phenomenal, isn't it? And, again, when I went to ADFA, uh, there were three degrees on offer. That was the Mm -hmm. art, science, or engineering, and you Mm -hmm. just had to pick one, Mm -hmm. whereas now, you know, there's a lot more choice. And, I mean, how fabulous would that have been, though, if we could Mm -hmm. have had that kind of exposure to different options? Um, My eldest daughter has just finished her master's in biomedical engineering, so she's gone down a really niche Mm -hmm. uh, career path, and the other's doing psychology, and um, she's, you know, doing neuroscience subjects and, and looking at all of that. So I think STEM for women, young girls is now something I hope we see more and more
0: doing. Yeah, definitely. And and just knowing that that potential is out there for people. And I think when there is such rapid change and there are so many options out there, I think a really, really important thing is for individuals to know what their strengths are. And uh, you may be familiar with the Gallup Strengths Finder approach where you identify what your top five strengths are out of the possible 32. And when people use their top five strengths every day, they're shown to be 600% more likely to be engaged and 300% more likely to report high life satisfaction. And I think for young people or at any stage of your career, if you know what those top five are, And when you look at an option, you say, "Well, that will that allow me to use those five strengths or not?" Can be quite a good um, filtering out process to working out what's right or or not right for you.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Although some things that you know, we've all done those strength finders, and none of them have ever surprised me. I remember being shocked. I wrote about it in my first book called Womankind, did one of those strengths tests. And to me, I saw them all as uh, quite masculine strengths. So I wrote about the ingrained stereotypes we have. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they're not masculine or feminine. Mm -hmm. But I think it could preclude you from doing something. So, if I had done a strengths finder before I joined ADFRA, I'm not sure that – I don't know what it would have shown, but whether or not it would have said go and join the Air Force, I have no idea. Um, but I'm really glad I went and did it anyway because mm-hmm. it was such a great experience. And, you know, young people that uh, talk to me about career paths now, I like mine has gone in so many different directions and mm-hmm. – I could never have predicted where it would have gone. And while I've always had short-term goals and really made conscious and unconscious choices to go in that direction, I've never had a long-term vision of what it could look like because I think it's too limiting. I've already achieved everything, you know, at 20. When I was imagining what it could look like at 20, I probably achieved it all at 25. And so (laughs) you need to constantly, you know, keep going and um, I have no idea what my future will look like either.
0: Just uh, segueing to team leadership and uh, you've had the opportunity to lead many teams, to observe other leaders leading teams. What do you think is the foundation of really great teams in, in today's environment where there's a lot of change, a lot of uh, volatility? Yeah.
1: I think mutual respect is incredibly important. So, that's something that leaders need to foster in their teams and that means starting with them, obviously. They need to respect the people that they're leading. Um, But this idea of humility and... Creating, you would everyone would have heard the term psychologically safe teams. I think having um, an environment where a leader is humble enough to serve and to encourage people to speak up, and so creating an environment or a team environment where courage is, you know, a really valued component. If you've got someone who gives feedback, thanking them for it, you know, making sure you act on it, I really think they're some of the key, but I mean, there's lots, lots of aspects yeah. to um, making a good team, but respect and, um, and courage and creating places where people can speak up is critical.
0: Yeah. In my uh, keynotes and workshops, I talk about um, helping Evan Larkin to start Are You OK? and just how much that's grown and sort of reach and impact. And then ask people reflect on a great team they've been in, uh, you know, it could be when they were McDonald's or this role, previous role, when they were a year nine team or footy footy team. What was it and how was it different from other teams you work in? And um, I give people about 10 options via Menti, you know, like an online poll situation you can organise either remotely or not. And always, I won't say always, in 95% of cases the top three are Top three qualities are we had each other's back, we cared for each other, and we enjoyed working together. And, uh, you know, that really does talk to psychological safety, those three things, although it's not those exact terms. How does a leader who has just joined an organisation where that approach is unusual, how do they get people conditioned that it is safe to speak up, it is safe to take moderate risks, it is safe to try new things? how do you bridge that gap
1: yeah I think if you I mean often the reverse is the case so the leader doesn't want to create that but the team members all do and that's a lot harder but if you're the leader I do think it's much easier to be able to you know I've worked with uh leaders where they'll say oh, I we go into meetings and no one else says anything you know I ask them for their opinion but they don't I you know, it's not my problem. They're not speaking up. So of course I have to speak. Well, it is your problem and you have caused that. And, you know, one of the, Things that I would do in that situation is go and have a meeting about why no one's speaking up. What is it that you're not understanding? And this is where vulnerability comes into it. And mm-hmm. saying clearly, there's something at my end that I need to do differently. Mm-hmm. I, I genuinely want to hear it. Now, if they're un- if it's been a really unsafe culture, this is going to take a while. Mm-hmm. But the second someone opens the door and says, "Well, when I said this three months ago, you said that was a stupid idea," mm-hmm. thank them for that. <laughs> Mm. thank them and then of course you've got feedback you need to act on and then i would go back to that person a few days later and again say look i really appreciated that um i'd love to hear more about what we can be doing differently and it's going to be these are the moments these are those leadership moments that every moment you get feedback it's thanking, doing that publicly if it's in a public forum. But the next time if you were to jump on someone, you'll undo all your good work. So you have to be consistent in genuinely wanting to hear feedback and then being grateful for it.
0: Yeah, because psychological safety is very fragile, isn't it? You know, very. just one sharp look, one dismissive. We've tried that, you know, has the capacity to really... Um, destroy it sort of thing and it really is to I guess be aware of that and look at um, you know how they can keep a tabs on that um, to keep progressing as an organisation.
1: I think so because people's bullshit meter is very sharp, <laughs> like we've all got really good ones. So, you can't have been really um, cranky at people for years and then come in on a Monday and go, Okay, well, now it's all fine. You know, I just want to hear what you have to say. You're going to have to earn a hell of a lot of trust. But for leaders that have a lot of credit in the bank and have always been good, and then they do have a day where they snap at someone, I do think you can rectify that by doing that quickly and publicly. And the next meeting going, oh, Look, I I was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I've, it's, I've been kicking myself ever since the meeting. My commitment to you is that that won't happen again. And if it does, I really want you to, you know, come and call me out on it. I think there's ways you can continue to maintain. we're human <laughs> we're, and not everyone has great days, but um, you need to have a huge amount of credit in the bank. <laughs> to be able to get away with that more than once, that's for sure.
0: Yeah. And you have a uh, column each week in the Sydney Morning Herald Me Age called Got a Minute. And um, one of the questions posed to you, which I'd just like to ask you on the spur of the moment, sure. is, is how do I deal with a micromanaging boss?
1: Uh, um, is this your question you could send it into the column anytime
0: <laughs> it, 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 was, it is one of your questions but I just yeah yeah I, I, appreciate I you talking to it
1: can i just tell you i get so many questions obviously and 90 percent are about bad bosses the the, wow. the poor behavior of bosses out there i mean if you're working for a micromanaging boss um it's re- it is difficult to change unless there's someone who's willing to hear feedback um, I think there's probably a way you can go and have a conversation about the list of priorities they keep giving you as the, because it tends to be that you can't get them all done. So, you can put it back onto them and say, look, you've given me all of these. You keep asking me about this detail. What is it you want done by the end of this week? Because, you know, I need to go away and actually be able to do that. Um, but it's difficult. I mean, Graham, we've all worked for micromanaging bosses. And if If they're like that, they're probably not a good leader generally. I mean, it's a red flag for the kind of person they're going to be on a whole range of different leadership fronts. Mm, Yeah, It is possible, though, to have, have a thing. I'm just thinking about the advice if I was in that position. Micromanaging bosses are generally hugely insecure. Um, so they don't feel secure in their own job so then they feel they have to control everyone else if you're (laughs) able to try and understand what's going on for them um, and have that kind of conversation with them that can help but it's going to require a huge amount of EQ on your part uh, and then you're probably going to get little of that back but it's really you know one of the directions you can go in.
0: Thank you. And another one that I saw, which I thought was quite interesting, how can I trust HR when managers with complaints against them get promoted?
1: Yeah, HR, they cop a bad stick in my column, not from me, but from readers who have had a really bad experience. I think HR generally needs a branding overhaul. Um, Look. There's really brilliant HR people out there, I know, because I've worked with them, but there's obviously a lot who aren't and they're not skilled in their role. And because they're not skilled in their role, they impact huge numbers of other people that they're um, leading. I think this comes down to the leadership of the business. Mm-hmm. So, CEOs, whoever HR reports to really making sure they're not hiring people who are um poorly equipped to deal with the real intricacies of leading people because the brilliant HR people I know are all strategic level thinkers. They understand the role they play of balancing, you know, representing the organisation, but really caring for people. And I'm a champion of HR because I think they're incredibly important. We need brilliant, brilliant HR people, but there's a lot that probably need to consider a different career.
0: Yeah, and um, just to move into, I guess, a, a final few questions, um, Kirsten, your book is due out when, Head and Heart? When is it uh, due out?
1: 31 January. So you can January. pre-order now, um, and I'd encourage everyone to visit headheartleader.com because you can do a free Head and Heart Leadership Assessment. You'll get a personalised report on your own Head and Heart Leadership, and I'd be fascinated to hear from people on what you think.
0: Yeah, I saw that and uh it was developed with um an academic at QUT, is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. My in fact my PhD supervisor yeah. at QUT, who's a quantitative researcher and because it's a survey, lots of numbers, Graham, I'm not big (laughs) on numbers, Um, you know, we wanted to make sure that it had all the validity of any kind of scale. So it's definitely a reliable tool, but it's really interesting as well. And it'll tell you if you're more of a head-based or a heart-based leader and then rank those eight attributes of your strengths.
0: Well, I'm going to certainly do that. I think it sounds really fascinating to look at those insights. (laughs) Take
1: a couple of minutes, headheartleader.com.
0: Fantastic. So just a final uh, question, and uh, this really is one I always ask people, if you could go back to your 18-year-old self, so even before that you, um, you know, when you are still at school, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give yourself?
1: Uh, say yes <laughs> to opportunities. <laughs> um I'm pretty much done, but i you know i I say that to other eighteen year olds now you even if you think you can't do them, someone else obviously thinks that you can, so believe and trust in them and take that opportunity because you just never know where it'll lead you.
0: yeah, I once had um a really great boss. Who really always treated me like one level above what I was, and I think that can be tremendously empowering. And yeah. uh, you know, for bosses, we, when you see that potential to encourage people to uh, to take that step,
1: absolutely. And that's this growth mindset, really believing in in others, and I think that's incredibly important.
0: <laughs> Thanks so much for being part of the uh, CEO, Caring CEO podcast. It's been a really great and interesting conversation and there may even be a part two and we'll <laughs> down the track because I think there's lots of other areas to cover.
1: Fantastic. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us today and we hope you've learned some practical tips that you can try with your team. If you've enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on your favourite podcast platform, We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing more details about our simple, scalable WeCare365 mental health training programs, please visit us at wecare365.com.au. We strive to make these programs easily accessible, practical and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a caring CEO you would like to see interviewed, please email us at support at wecare365.com.au. Thanks once again for joining us.